0: Kia ora, I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a 2017 festival podcast proudly powered by Spark. The New York Times photography critic and award-winning novelist and essayist Teju Cole takes the audience on a virtual tour of the work of twelve his current favourite photographers. We hope you enjoy it. Uh, So many of you will already have had the privilege of hearing uh, Teju Cole speak this week, whether it's about his delicate artful novels, Open City and Every Day is for the Thief, or about the art of the essay form of which he is a contemporary master, or as the inspiration for a fantastic series of Instagram essays from New Zealand writers on Friday night on High Street. Uh, But as if that weren't enough, Teju is also a superb art critic And on many, many occasions, he cited the influence of the late, great John Berger, a writer who transformed the world for all of us who spend our lives writing and thinking about the role of visual arts within society. Uh, It's always struck me as a reader and fan of Teju's work that he really is the heir to Berger's work in so many ways. Uh, The extraordinary clarity of his descriptions, the charged yet subtle polemic that underpins his criticism, but most of all i think his understanding of the profound importance of the slow act of seeing particularly in a world where the line between the real and the image is now so difficult to define and articulate tajo is a photography critic for the new york times and his next book blind spot published in june is a collection of his own photographs with accompanying text uh, today he'll introduce us to the work of 12 photographers who are most engaging his critical attention at the moment And I for one can't wait to hear him do it. So please welcome to the stage Teju Cole Thank you, thank you.
1: Well hello everybody, um, thank you very much. That was a lovely introduction Anthony um, I think it was, I was behind the door, and I didn't have a monitor. (laughs) Um, But from the uh, cadences of your voice, it sounded like you were saying nice things. (laughs) So, thank you. How's everybody doing? It's rather dark in here for you. Um, But it's really beautiful outside. You know, it's it's really great. So, I'm going to try to make this not... um, unpleasant to be in a, in a dark auditorium on a beautiful day when you could be walking around, um, taking in the sights. It's a great pleasure to be in Auckland. Um, I've really, really enjoyed doing these events, um, engaging with people and having conversations about literature and about life, uh, which is a bit of a, a redundancy, um, because literature is life. You cannot just um, keep yourself to talking about craft um, and I think the same thing is true of photography—that it is life. That to to try to speak um, uh, intelligently and ethically about the practice of photography is that you start thinking about what you know, what what life is about. So, um, as Anthony probably said, I'm going to be talking about twelve photographers um, as a way to. It's it's often fun to work within a form, and just to say. Take 12 ph- photographers. In this case, I've picked 12 photographers who are still at work, who are alive. So I didn't want it to be like, uh, you know, greatest hits or like the classics, you know? You could easily um, find a lecture where somebody's talking about um, Ajay or Robert Frank or whatever, Cartier-Bresson. Um, but I wanted to give you a kind of um, a scan of where my head is right now, in terms of people whose work I'm looking at. Um, but I, I mean, I don't know how many people are in this room right now. But it's it's likely that, however many people there are, um, there are at least as many cameras. So because all your phones have cameras. Um, in fact, I I don't know why we don't call you know the device when we take a picture. We don't say you took it with a, a phone camera, which is sort of the logical thing to say. We say camera phone almost as if the camera comes first. Um, but certainly, there's no barrier to entry. If you wanted to look at the world in a photographic way, it is possible to do so. Um, so in that sense, I'm not delivering material to you sort of as an expert telling you, what, you know, what uh, some distant thing that has no bearing on your life. Um, it's, it's an art that we all practice. Um, that's important to me. That's been important to the way I approach photography criticism, um, because I think the cult of expertise can be quite dangerous. I mean, this idea that um, as an expert, speaking only to other experts, that that's the only place where discourse can happen. Um, I think there's great value in actually presenting something and saying that what is there is... um, um, is, 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 is visible to you. It, it can be seen by you regardless of your expertise. Um, and I'm not a photography expert. I mean, haven't been obsessed with it for a dozen years. I suppose I'm kind of an expert at this point. Um, but I'm not trained as a photography expert, um, which, which probably annoys some people. Um, but for me, it gives me access to thinking about the ways in which I can make photography comprehensible to other people who are not experts. While I was walking on High Street yesterday, um, yesterday in which there were at least five different seasons, <laughs> um, I went down to the harbor, I woke up in the morning, I said, I've got to get to an island today, any island, I don't care, I've got to get to an island. I go to the harbor and I thought, nope, not doing that. Because <laughs> <laughs> that was a squall, you know. So I ended up sort of wandering around that whole area and then walking, wandering around High Street. And I saw a sign, I think it was for an optician, um, you know, and it said, um, uh, real, you know, even all advertising has to sort of come with inspirational quotes these days. You can't just, they can't just say, you know, fucking buy the thing. They have to, everybody has to try to be uh, roomy or something. <laughs> You've got to become the Buddha just in order to sell you a, a T-shirt. Um, and this sign said, "Vision is the art of seeing the invisible." <laughs> and I thought, no, that's exactly what vision is not. <laughs> you know <laughs> You know, I mean, kudos to the copywriter. Nice try. Vision is the art of seeing the visible, right? Um, uh, Oscar Wilde, probably a, 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 more, a more talented writer than this poor copywriter, um, said that uh, it is only shallow people who do not judge by appearances. You know, I mean, of course, Wilde really loved, you know, to do these surprising reversals. But there's there's something to to learn there. You know, this idea that if you really look, even at what something looks like, there's so much to draw out of it. There's so much information in that. Um, After all, a a photograph is a a two-dimensional surface. Um, This is fun. This is like show and tell. (laughs) You know? I hope I can show you a few things, and you just look at them and say, what's that? Who's that? Okay. well, this this is who this is. Um, And basically, I I mean, I guess we'll just sort of keep this casual. Put up some pictures. I'll talk about a few things about them. If I have to refer to my notes, I will for facts and figures. But that's really not what it's about. Latoya Ruby Frazier is a young American photographer. Um, um, and helpful rule of thumb for me now is when I call somebody young, that means they're younger than I am. <laughs> and uh, if uh, if they, you know, and if if I say they're mid-career, they're older than I am. So. Um, so, I'm 28, so she's younger than 28. Oh, hush. Yes. <laughs> 28 with, uh, you know, 13 years experience. All right. So, um, Latoya Ruby Frazier um, grew up in the, f- uh, in the steel town of Braddock, Pennsylvania. Um, and while in high school, started making pictures. And... This is a self-portrait with her grandmother. That's her on the right, which completely changes your experience of the photograph. She was a prodigy, she is a prodigy. This is Latoya and her mom. And there's a tradition in American photography of sort of going into these spaces that were sort of steel towns um, or turning your photograph on American, or your, your camera on American poverty, you know, people like Lewis Hine, or... Um, uh, I mean, there were any number of people who shot in, in the area of Pittsburgh, you know, from you know Walker Ev- Evans did, Lee Friedlander did. Um, what do all these people have in common? They're all, you know, white men of a certain access, certain sort of class also. But definitely tending towards the external view um, and the question that Latoya is asking is, you know, what does, what does Braddock look like? What does that experience look like? Well, it's not just the terrain. Um, it is the effect on people's bodies. Um, and the fact that life is actually possible in these places but that life is very much under, um, under pressure. So her work starts with her family. Very intimate pictures, as you can see. Sometimes a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, to look like, people's houses, people's bedrooms. Um, In fact, I I just wanted to understand her work, so I went to Braddock, Pennsylvania, which is a seven-hour drive from New York City, just to look around, not to interview anybody. Um, And it was being there that helped me understand that the the house in which she grew up was pretty much a three-minute walk from one of the largest steel plants I've ever seen. So, all this smoke is being inhaled, um, and it's a kind of uh, working town where there's all this money being produced out of it. You know, Andrew Carnegie's first steel mill was in that town. Um, of course, then he takes all that money and he, you know, um, he makes a name and he builds uh, cultural institutions in other places. Uh, Henry Clay Frick was working with Carnegie at the time. Frick makes a Frick collection, but there's no Rembrandts or Vermeers or paintings by Titian in Braddock, Pennsylvania. Those paintings are in New York. Um, What you have is Braddock, Pennsylvania, which is uh, falling apart. What I really like about Latoya Ruby Frazier's work is that over the body, uh, uh, her first body of work, she has been able to give us three uh, levels of sort of the skin of this experience. The interior of the home, family. Um, her mother got very, very sick. Um, streetscape, you know, a, a, streetsca- uh, a town that is completely gutted. Um, there's a house and then there's three abandoned lots. N- that has not been hit by a bomb. That's just a house that's been collapsing from neglect. you know. But that was somebody's house once upon a time. And then finally, she takes to the air and gives us a view um, from above of, of, this, of, this, of this kind of loss. So I think um, as a kind of answer, kind of repost to, um, to what socially concerned photography in the American Rust Belt might look like I think Latoya Ruby Frazier's is a very important voice. Second photographer is Georgi uh, Pinkasov, um, born in Russia in the middle of the 20th century. What I love about Pinkasov's work is the sheer visual intelligence at work. His elements. The elements of any photograph, as you know, as 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 you know, Berger would say, are light and time. You know, you have light going through an aperture, going onto a light-sensitive surface, and you find a way of sort of fixing it. And it goes through the aperture for a set period of time—one twenty-fifth of a second, you know, half a second, um, one five-sixtieth of a second, or however long. But when you're looking at a photograph by Pinkasov, you're really aware of light, light at play. He, he's so gifted at drawing out abstraction from everyday situations. So this almost looks like a, a painting, you know. Uh, but it, meanwhile, I, I mean, I think this is a picture he made in Paris. I, let me see if I can, it looks like, looks like the Eiffel Tower. Yep, it is, right? So you're going up the Eiffel Tower and there's all this riot of uh, steel beams. Um, um, and he just catches this moment and he always gives you just enough to locate yourself and then you know that it is not a pure abstraction, it's something drawn from life. And so he's one of the most gifted wielders of the human silhouette. You know, It turns out that all you need to know, it's just a little profile of a face and it's situated in the real world. Hallway of a hotel, in Tokyo you know I'm such a wonderful evoker of dreams, of dreamscapes. Um, sometimes the gesture is so soft, so simple that you think, "Ah, I could have made that picture uh, ex- except for, of course, that you didn't <laughs> um, <laughs> you know um, and so I love his work for the way it constantly reminds us that. Um, Photography actually is, is an art of seeing. It's, it's you see the world. Um, it's a, uh, you know, as Cartier-Bresson says, it's a game of millimeters, you know? If you had just moved a little bit to the side and moved on, you would not have caught that man's shadow just at that moment in evening light in Russia, in a market that is winding down for the day but he catches it at the right moment. He's got that slant of light so that this puddle becomes like molten mercury um, and he captures this, this ineffable moment. Nice cock. I have no idea why I just said that. Okay. It's shadow play but there's more to it than that, you know? There's, there's also the, the controlled color palette. Um, it is a work of sort of evenings and slant light and unexpected perspectives. It's evidently, you know, tutored by painting. When you look at this, you think of something like Degas. Um, but you also think of filmmaking because what I find in this work is that a certain quality not only that things are kind of in motion, moving a little bit, but almost as if things are settling into their final forms. He's not just captured what it is, it's, it's almost as if he, he, he has captured it before it, it has finished becoming itself. It, it's, it, there's, there's a notion of inadvertence in the work that is so lovely. These are two different pictures that he posted on Instagram. Um, where it, and, and I really love um, sort of seeing master artists on Instagram who are just out of the flow of daily life or just giving us sort of these uh, miracles of vision. Very different from Pinkasov is Jem Southam. Uh, if there's a certain velocity and lightness and flow to um, to, to Pencasov's work. In a, in a photographer like Jem Southam, who's, who's in his late 60s now, uh, English photographer, what you have is immensity and slowness. Southam shoots with a large format camera. Um, and not just like a large format camera, he, should, he actually sets it up on a, um, on a ladder for reasons of parallax, so everything is just sort of head on. Very, very crisp description. And what he will do is make an image and a very short t- uh, 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 some, w- some time later he'll make a second one um, or maybe a third in the same terrain. And so his work is very much about slow changes in the landscape. Again, this is about the visible but very slow. Okay, So it's not the decisive moment but the glacial, the climactic, the ongoing moment. This is the same terrain, uh, two different times of day. Um, uh, Southam's work is largely done in the southwest of England uh, around where, where he lives. Um, uh, this is a chine, um, a, uh, a, natu- a naturally occurring geographic feature of rocks. Um, and this is called Whale Chine. It's it's in the Isle of Wight, I believe. Um, okay, so this was earlier. This is the morning, a morning in February 2000, and this is afternoon. So it's a play of light, but it's also about rockfall. Okay, so you could have an avalanche, but on, on a on a on a slower level, you could have a rockfall. Um, but Every uh, sort of mountain or rock or cliff, any any protuberant, you know, geolo- geological feature, is, uh, as you know, is always moving, um, and sometimes it's moving very, very slowly, um, and this phenomenon is called creep, um, or you know, soil creep, rock creep, um, and creep is so slow that it is said that there are certain geologists who spend their entire career following one single rock, moving, moving down the face of a mountain. Um, this might be apocryphal, but I would like to believe it. This is the Yeo River, um, I think it's in Somerset. And this is called the Blind Yeo. Uh, because it doesn't um, run to the sea, it it, it, it ends, uh, it's it's closed off through human intervention, but it's a tidal river, and this this is this is the year River at um, at 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 high tide, so this is at low tide, this is at high tide. There's something when you're looking at Pinkasov's pictures, you have this feeling of excitement, like, wow, how did he capture that? And in this one, what you get is a sort of profound feeling of looking with him, with tremendous patience. You can almost, you know, feel yourself breathing. Um, It's interesting, when he makes these pictures, I mean, this was sort of like in the course of the same day, but if you look at this one, for example, which is from Seaford Head, this is in 2000 and Seaford Head. This is in 1999, so it's a year apart. Sometimes he does them five years apart. Um, The change is not very dramatic, but what's interesting in addition to just seeing how the rock face changes, this is the later one, this is the earlier, um, is that he also, he's not fanatical about just having, having the photograph of the camera placed in exactly the same place, the edges change. So let me go back to the, uh, to, to the, to the, uh, to the earlier one, which, which was taken later, but um, earlier in my slide. Um, right, so it's not lined up perfectly. Because he doesn't want it to become this game of, you know, spot the difference. That game we all we used to play as kids. Spot the difference between these two cartoons. That's not the point. He wants to bring in his own subjective act as a photographer, saying what made for an ideal, balanced picture the previous time, well, maybe I just need to move a couple of feet to the side this time around to get an ideally balanced picture. Um, These are the kinds of photos actually that are really at a disadvantage when I'm projecting them up here, because what you really want to see is a beautiful large print or a beautifully large format printed book, um, because they're just exquisite. Um, I'm always grateful for the people who are still doing things like uh, large-format photography um, because there's still a material aspect to, to, to photography, to all photography in any case, um, even if it's digital, um, and people who are able to work with that. Um, um, it's much appreciated. Graciela Iturbide is a Mexican photographer. Um, she studied with Manuel Alvarez Bravo. Uh, who was Mexico's great photographer of the 20th century. Um, and uh, she, she's very close to his vision, though she's sort of sort of done her own uh, exploration. She's still, she's still at work. She was born in 1942 in Mexico City. Um, uh, she's not really an anthropologist, but there's so many anthropological touches in her work. This is a picture made in the Sonora de- de- uh, Desert I think this was made in the uh, uh, yeah in the late '70s. Um, one of her first great pictures. She was uh, uh, among um, the Seri people, S-E-R-I, um, and what she would do sort of go to these places, hang out with people, um, get to know their culture, and just sort of wait for the moment when the special photo happens you know so she's not parachuting in and trying to grab a few photos and then run away but she'll stay with people for weeks with for months um and wait for something to happen so such as you know she's hanging out with these people who've been very influenced by american southwest culture the sonora desert um is is close to arizona Um, and that woman you know she's she's sort of this angel of the desert but she's also carrying a radio was given to her by Americans in exchange for arts and crafts. Um, I really, really value Iturbide for her um, surreal vision. If you think of the classic photographic surrealists, um, you know, like Man Ray and, um, and people who were involved with that movement, you know, um, uh, both in writing and in in, in photography. Uh, there was something that, I mean, you, you read the theory, okay, it sounds great, but then you look at the images, there was something slightly overdetermined about it. So surrealism, the moment it became sort of an ism, it became rigid in a way that I don't always find convincing. And I find that the pictures I really find surreal are people who are not working under sort of these, these constructs, but it's people who have an ability to dip their hands into the flow of the everyday and and pull out something uh, completely unexpected. Um, so, you know, as one does, she's hanging out, uh, hanging out at a cemetery mm-hmm. and there's this flock of birds. She's like, okay, fine, I will, uh, you know. Seems legit, you know. She's at a market in Oaxaca and there's a woman with uh, iguanas on her head. Um, so surreal, something out of the world of dreams but also so real because real, you know, but also because of the way the iguanas agree with the floral pattern on her blouse, and it all, you know, it's just of these things that could not really have been planned. I mean, this woman sort of poses for her, so there's a little bit of agreement and collaboration there, but um, she did not have to Photoshop iguanas in later on. I love days feeling for the inanimate as well, um, so that you know you have uh, cacti um, being supported, it's maybe it's drooping, and it, then it becomes this thing of uh, uh, a cactus with a in a tutu or something. You know, I try to think about why images like this feel surreal, um, disturbing. You know, it's um, it's a pieta in a way, you know. It's a little girl holding her little brother on Holy Thursday, somewhere in Oaxaca. Um, but there's something about her fingernails, those dots of white that look like the dots of white on the on the on the netting, and then the reverse, the flower on her dress. Um and the kid we know is sleeping, but you'd think is a kid, you know, dead. Um there's this kind of patterning that is um Intriguing in some way, and there's always like a tiny little element that just just pushes a little bit further, like the two front teeth of the child, the two nostrils. So everywhere you look, it's almost like dots, and then you end up thinking of something like scarlet scarlet fever or chickenpox or something. So cruelly surreal images very much work by suggestion suggestibility, and she had this whole series of plants that were being treated in some way and they sort of, Im- in a way ended up reminding her of uh, human frailty. Danila Zulkman is definitely a young photographer because <laughs> uh, um, I met her when she was just a cub reporter. She was in, um, she was still an undergraduate student but that was about a dozen years ago, uh, 10 years ago. Um, she's doing wonderful, wonderful very, very thoughtful work now. This body of work, um, her most recent, uh, she had a book called Signs of Your Identity. Um, it's kind of hard to read. It's almost not a, a, not a photograph. What she's done here is that she's, she's used a double exposure. Uh, these are photos she took in Canada among survivors of residential schools. Um, it's, you know, it's quite interesting, almost everywhere where you've had settler colonial societies, always at some point there's a move to sort of take the natives and forcibly uh, civilize them. And very often it involves some f- form of um, compelling um, some subset of the children to go to Western schools, far away from their parents, or forcible adoptions, uh, this sort of thing. Has this sort of thing happened in New Zealand? So it's pretty much reliably everywhere. Happened in the US, um, it's uh, definitely happened in Australia. It's been a big conversation about that. Happened in Canada, so this is mostly from Western Canada. Uh, and, and, and these schools in, in the Canadian situation where they ran for 120 years. Um, and the last one only closed in 1996. Uh, so she actually met some quite young people who were survivors of these schools. Um, why are these schools a bad idea? For very obvious reasons, you know. Um, you know, if you spoke your native language, you got beaten. Um, there was sexual abuse. There was all kinds of physical abuse. And, 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 so, and sometimes um, the experience was generational, you know. Were, uh, a mother would, you know, some, a woman would go in the 60s and, get, and, and, and be raped at these schools. And then her daughter would go and be raped at these schools. Um, uh, It was in 2008 for the first time the Canadian government apologized. It's, you know, okay, so it's a classic photojournalistic story. How do you tell a story like that? But what I like so much about Daniela Zaltman's approach is that she went there, she talked to these people, and she created this project that pretty much had three layers. One was the stories of these people. She did extensive interviews with them and she integrated that into the project. But then (coughs) she had their portraits and did a double exposure with the terrain of the respective schools. If the building was still standing, she had the building. If not, she had the grassland over where the school was. Um, And cumulatively, it's, it's so moving because it becomes uh, a, a visual demonstration of the inescapability of memory. Um, so I think, she, you know, she, she's a young photographer, but thinking very seriously and very effectively about that perennially thorny question of how do you tell stories of other people? You know, how do you, you don't, you don't want to parachute in there and take a bunch of, sort of sexy pictures of people who've suffered. Um, um, how, how How do you convey that discomfort? But a further interesting thing that she did, because then she was like, well, isn't this, doesn't this also become on some level a kind of erasure, you know, you're having their faces, but you're not really showing their faces. So when she made the book, she'll have sort of this image on one page, but on the preceding page, in a kind of almost like you know, um, translucent wax paper. Mm. She had the full image of the face so that when you layered it on it, the full face emerged. And so the book is this alternate, alternating, translucent and solid paper. Really, really beautiful project. Very, very compelling. Um, and now she's, she's expanded that work and she's, she's been doing some interviews in Australia she plans to go to Kenya, she plans to come to New Zealand and uh, look into that subject. Well, you know this dude. Stephen Shore. Why, why is Stephen Shore's photography interesting? He makes pictures like this. He makes pictures like this. So Stephen Shore, in addition to being an extraordinary Photo pioneer, uh, pioneer in terms of um, using color at a time when most people were... Oh, okay. No, that wasn't me. Oh, sorry. My, my monitor just started doing something funny. Okay. Um, could tech please make sure my monitor comes back? It's just showing me a timer now. It's, okay, thank you. Did that change at all? No, it didn't. Right, so now it's it's like I'm talking to imaginary friends, because <laughs> this is changing. Um, but he also brought into the mainstream of photography a resolute and insistent banality. You know, it's like everything is fodder for photography. Now, if you're on Instagram, you're like, well, yes, of course, everything is fodder for photography. You know, but he was really the first person to like take a pic picture of his breakfast, you know? Every teenage boy and girl does it now, and including lots of people who are not teenagers. I mean, I take pictures of my food and put it on Instagram. But when he did it, people would said, you know, you must be having us on. This is not art. This is not real photography. Um, but what, it's, what is easy to miss with sure is his tremendous sense of not just irony, not just deadpan, but structure. His pictures are always fully achieved, and when you look at very many of them, he did American Surfaces, and this, this was from a later project from the 70s also called Uncommon Places. When you look at very many of his pictures, you start to get a sense of his use of angles, diagonals, balance. Ac- they are actually good pictures. A recent project of his that's not gotten very much attention, but that I like a lot, shows how convincingly he's moved into shooting with, uh, with digital cameras. He did a project in the Ukraine of survivors of the Holocaust. Portraits, interiors, personal possessions. And that book is oh, so moving, so powerful. Somehow, if I saw this picture, I would know it was Stephen Shore. And it, it has to do with the straight aheadness of it but also in the way that little thing on the bottom left over there, there, there's just a way he uses diagonals that is him. And also his fondness for the 4x5 format. Very much a Stephen Shore photo. And he it just, it just, it just nails it. It's just, when you first see, you're like, well, that's nothing. And then it sort of gets mesmerizing in a way that does not deliver an immediate punch. But again, over the course of, um, of, 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 of a project, and this, this Ukraine project was an entire book, um, you, 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 you just sort of get hypnotized by his way of seeing the world. I follow Steven on, on, on Instagram. Um, he's active on Instagram. This is a picture he put on Instagram last week. Um, he doesn't do a lot of street photography decisive moment kind of thing, but occasionally he'll take a picture of strangers and you just think, God damn it, he nailed it. What, how, you know? And then, and then he'll put up a picture of something else that has everybody scratching their heads, like this. he put this on Instagram. And, and yet, for me, this is as m- integral a part of his vision as this is, and as this is. He, is, he has a truly democratic eye. Um, and it's about collecting the world and dispersing it um, in, in, in this interesting way. Um, uh, Stephen Shore, in addition to being a legend of photography, he, he was twenty-four years old when he had his first solo exhibition at the Metropolitan Museum in New York. So, you know, get do something with your life, please. Um, <laughs> He was 14 when the Museum of Modern Art in New York first bought prints from him, and he never went to college. Um, But he's also my colleague at Bard College, and uh, he's a very self-effacing man, wonderful human being. Okay, Uh, Zanele Moholy, I'll go back so you can see her name. Zanele Moholy is a, and I probably have to accelerate a little bit is a young South African photographer, portraitist, um, who's done a beautiful series of portraits called Faces and Phases. I like her approach to portraiture, mostly shot in the townships of, of Joburg and elsewhere in South, Af- South Africa, um, of lesbian and trans women. Um, she makes them look good. She photographs them the way they wish to be seen. They set it up together. It's a collaboration between the sitter and the photographer. And she's just sort of done dozens, hundreds of these. And when you see them in a massive array on, a, on the wall of a museum, the effect is staggering, especially with the, in the context of, of the incredible violence that queer people face in South Africa. Uh, Lesbians, in particular, are murdered, uh, often the subject of so-called corrective rape, which is as horrible as it sounds. Uh, Zanelli's work has very much... She calls herself an activist first and a photographer second, Uh, but it is clear that um, photographic vision is essential to what what she does. Um, Taking us into spaces that uh, very often our imagination does not have access to. And then, uh, in recent times, She's been doing self-portraiture, which, in addition to foregrounding her own queerness, um, is also a kind of empire strikes back, uh, a a repost to um, ethnographic seeing, you know, the way Zulu or Osa women were seen by uh, colonialists. So that's Sanele. And there's Thomas Struth, who is uh, one of the notable contemporary German photographers, also very often shooting with uh, large format. I find his work gorgeous, dreamy. I particularly like the series of work he's done in tourist spaces, especially museums and churches, Um, um, kind of making artwork in response to artwork. Struth studied with uh, Bernd and Hiller uh, Hille Becher in Germany in the, in the 70s. Um, uh, they're the ones who did the water towers, typographic, you know, repeated or, or uh, roof structures, repeated, um, very unsentimental, very straightforward fo- uh, photos. Not, not, not banal like Stephen Shore's, but like very formal and very sort of repeated forms. Um, and their leading uh, students and disciples, in addition to uh, Candida Höfer, are uh, Struth, Thomas Struth, and, uh, and uh, Andreas Gursky, and uh, Thomas Ruff, um, who are sometimes um, uh, collapsed into Struthski, uh because they're all sort of like German guys who take large format photos, so, but, but they're all sort of distinct. I mean, we all go to galleries and take pictures of other people in galleries, but when Struth does it, it it feels complete. The scatter of bodies, interacting with the scatter of bodies on the wall behind them always works. I also think he's a great group portraitist, which is a very difficult art to do. Um, This is his portrait of the family of um, uh, Gerhard and Sabine Richter, Gerhard Richter you will know as uh, maybe the greatest living painter. Um, this picture just has rhyme and rhythm and, and tension, um, it's relaxed, it's intimate, it's also a little bit weird, um, it's, it's protective, it's really lovely, you know, I'm sure we all have a picture of a skull on, in our living room. Um, <laughs> It's like, dude, you've painted every possible subject, but the one you chose for your house is the skull. I love it, I mean, it keeps you focused. <laughs> um, but if you just look at this picture, I mean, look at what the hands are doing, you know? You sort of have one, two, three, four, five, you have this beautiful constellation of hands, six, actually. Um, and it just sort of really works. Um, so I, I, like, um, I like both, I like Struth's um, technical mastery of photography, but I also love his his um, his visual intelligence. This is a surgery of somebody having um, a very delicate brain operation um, and so he's also he 's interested in in, in museums he 's interested in um, te- technology he, he shoots factories and surgeries but he 's also interested in uh, nature preserves and you know, land, landscape in that particular sense, such as this, this view of a nature-preserved forest. And what connects all of those things is, he's trying to think through the ways we institutionalize uh, the world, the visible world. Another person who do, does very good work around sort of institutions and institutionalization of things is um, the wonderful Taryn Simon whom I can neither call young nor old, because she's exactly uh, the same age as I am, or at least she was born the same year. Um, varied body of work. If I showed you, showed you this, that's why Tyron Simon, and I showed you this, and I showed you this, and I showed you that, and I showed you this. It's very hard to figure out what they might all have in common. What you might think if you, you know, had the habit of reading pictures, if I, if, I, if, I sh- if I saw such a disparate group of pictures, my first thought would be that there's some kind of conceptual pressure underneath this image. In other words, there might be a little bit more to them than meets the eye. So maybe the optician on High Street is not completely wrong. That she might be depicting some things that are, have, there's more to it than What's visible, okay. So, she has always been concerned about what is hidden and what is hard to put into a picture. In this project, um, she had a whole series of portraits of people who were released from prison after being exonerated by DNA evidence. This man did 10 years in prison for a murder he did not commit because at least 13 different witnesses say they saw him at this bar, um, uh, which is where the murder took place. Um, but he didn't do it. So she, she takes him back there and makes a portrait of him. Because how do you show those 10 years? How do you show that suffering? Um, and then so she, she then she pins it down. She's like, finally, now he's at this place. So he has been there. He just wasn't there at the time of the murder. How do you show something like the threat of nuclear waste? This is her photograph of a nuclear waste storage facility, which uncannily, with its glowing, seems to also coincidentally mimic the shape of the map of the United States. She did a series of, she hung out at JFK airport in New York, I know it's disgusting, um, for a few days. And over a, a time period she photographed um, everything that was seized by customs. And most of it was like cheap drugs from China, um, or you know, sort of leopard skin bags. And, but people would try to bring food, people would try to bring in, you know, um, Stuffed animals, all sorts of things that you cannot bring into the united States um, the u s is not as strict as New Zealand is um, about these things, but you know fairly strict. they try to c- catch things um, and this is a kind of fruit, a tuber that, that somebody tried to smuggle in from Peru and in, in fact, by the time she was photographing it, and possibly by the time it, it was seized, um, it was already as you can see. Um, Uh, going bad and and sort of uh, breaking apart. Um, It will interest you to know that this particular tuber is colloquially known as the New Zealand Yam. (laughs) So this one's on you. (laughs) And this project uh, has a long name. Uh, It's called A Living Man Declared Dead and and Other Chapters. I wouldn't really go into it, but it's a very complex story she attempted to tell about. Family lines, blood lines, um, uh, family lines that have some kind of kink in the in the tail, some kind of complication, and so she would find one person, find all their living relatives, how they're related by blood, and then she would write some anecdotal evidence in a second panel, and in the third, she would make pictures of circumstantial uh, material. Um, complex to explain but um, I'm just gonna sort of skip over it. But she did 13 different chapters of this. You know, Either like for example, the bloodline of somebody who is believed to be the reincarnation of his grandfather or the bloodline of somebody who in India who cannot prove that he's alive because a malevolent person in the next village has stolen his identity in order to um, take his land. That sort of thing. And then finally, this very intriguing project, which simply looks like a flower arrangement, but this flower arrangement is the same as this flower arrangement. Now, this picture uh, was taken in 2008, but not by Terence Simon. This is a press picture, and the label came later. It is the agreement between Libya and the United States to sort of draw a line under the the Lockerbie case and then the associated terrorist and military things that were connected to that. What she's done is that she's gone into the files and she's found historical treaties and arrangements of this kind in which wherever, you know, important men are signing treaties, there's always a flower arrangement. And she's gone back and reconstructed the flower, it's it's always important men, I'm sorry. Um, and it's, it's usually important white men, um, but she's sort of reconstructed the flower arrangements as a kind of index of those events and then made a large format photograph of it. And then in a little panel on the right, given the account of what happened. So this stands in for all of that complicated paperwork. It's called Paperwork and the Will of Capital, this project. It's Fantastic, fantastic, thoughtful work. All right. Getting there, three more. and I know we're running out of time and I'd really, really love to get your questions. So maybe they'll allow me to have five extra minutes. I'm I'm just gonna hurry through these last few. Dianita Singh uh, uh, lives in New Delhi and in Goa. Wonderful, wonderful photographer. Not simply (laughs) theme music. Get off the stage music. We we actually still have five five, five more minutes, but I want 10 more minutes. Um, Dianita Singh lives uh, in India. Um, This is from a a project she did, one of her early projects, called Myself Mona Ahmed. Um, Portraits of this, of this, uh, I I guess Mona Ahmed is, uh, She's transgender, yeah. Um, and she, she, she was part of the traditional Indian um, practice of, 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 the, of the eunuchs um, who perform at weddings and the itinerant uh, singers. But even within that group she was very much an outsider. Um, and, uh, but Dianita got very, very, very close to her. And what I love about her projects is that it just really very much goes beyond the merely documentary. It's very intimate. She made a beautiful book of portraits of Mona Ahmed. But Dianita just has such a great eye. And she's able to put together, she believes her art form is the book. And she puts together these lovely sequences that are just like poetry. This This project was called File Room. So she loves archives. This was called Museum of Men. It's a whole project of men at work. This was called Blue Book. Um, This is also from Blue Book. Um, This is from a project called Museum of Chance. But I, I love the way things, the lucidity of her work, the way objects speak, um, things feel like they've been touched, they've been used. They they are full of the memories of the people who use them. Um, she's one of the real poets of the camera. Another great poet of the camera is a Japanese photographer, Rinko Kawauchi, who, um, and I think what she and Dianita have in common is that you know, there is a little bit of an ironic uh, energy to somebody like Stephen Shore's work, who's, who's really foregrounding the banality. Um, what Rinko Kawauchi does, it, to an even greater degree than Dianita Singh, is it is the ordinary, but she elevates it to the status of the miracle. It's, 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 it's very soft, but it's also very mysterious, and it's almost as if she's going through life in a kind of daze, and very unusual things are presenting themselves to her, and she's just making images of everything that she, she sees, and so that when you go through one of her books, there's, it's, 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 it's like you, you have your eyes open, but you almost feel as if your eyes are closed, and you're seeing with your mind, or you're somehow seeing it with your emotions. This very unusual picture she made in the wreckage of the Fukushima... Uh, events of 311, um, a white pigeon and a black one, circling and circling, looking for a place to land. And then this is a project she did around traditional Japanese practice of burning the fields. a Project called Ametsuchi. All right, and then my last photographer is the great Alex Webb, one of the living masters of decisive moment photography Um, in a way that's related to his magnum colleague uh, Pankasov, but quite different. He's able to make an image that just nails it. And you just think, wait, what, how? How did he get that? He didn't pose these people. This is just a street scene in the 80s in Bombardopolis in northern Haiti. It's like taking the Cartier-Bresson idea of the geometrically resolved picture and then throwing in a dash of color and throwing in two degrees of complexity. I think Alex Webb is the kind of photographer that young, tough guy, men photographers think, I want to be like Alex Webb, you know? Um, And you can never be like Alex Webb, forget about it. You know? You could like hang out at a playground for three years. You'll never get this picture. You know? Um, I think the universe collaborates with him to just give him these strange, I mean, this one looks like a, a dryer cycle and just put, throw a bunch of kids into a dryer and just spin them around. Um, perfectly resolved. I asked him about this picture. He said, well, I was in Istanbul and I saw these mirrors in this, in this uh, barbershop so i stepped in and i said you know can i can i take a pic can i you know can i make some pictures here and they said yes yeah, come in now most of us would maybe not have the boldness to do that but if we thought oh can i you know we might ask can i take a picture in here we might step in you know you know sort of in an embarrassed way take three or four quick pictures and, and, and move on again he stays there until he gets his shot he sho- he stepped in and shot six rolls of film And he got this picture and boy was it worth it. Miracles, miracles of vision. This is also in Haiti. And it's not just the geometry that is resolved, it is the colors as well. I mean you think this is amazing, check this one out. Kids are hanging out and he's hanging out with his camera. And snap. And you've not even, you're not even done seeing this picture yet, because look all the way to the left. You see that basketball hoop? And there's a ball just falling through it? <laughs> That's what makes it an Alex Webb picture. Miracles. OK, and the last picture, so, uh, by, also by Alex Webb, photograph taken on the island of uh, Tokelau inside a church. Um, about 15 years ago. Um. All right. That's 12 photos, photographers, to begin with. Thank you. All right, thank you. Thanks a lot. Um, I hope you liked at least two photographers and uh, we can uh, take some questions. um, And maybe, you know, it's it's exactly one o'clock now. Uh, some of you have to go, but maybe we can just go five minutes over and uh, get it going, yeah. Uh, the, ca- the, um, the microphones are up here, so maybe the next person can sort of come up. Yeah, thank you. Hey there. Hello. <clears throat> I kind of feel like my heart is kind of bursting right now, just with everything we've seen. It's really beautiful. Thank, thank, you. You. thank you. My father was a photographer, and um, he always talked about taking photographs, and I feel like that was always the word that was used uh, over many years. And I noticed people talking about making photos now. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting what's distinction, the, yeah. Yeah, what's, can, can you? Um, you know, I mean, o- originally, thank you very much. Uh, the, there's always been this um, debate right from the get-go whether photography is art. Of co- I mean, of course it's art. <laughs> But, you know, the question was always there. I mean, if you just snap something from the real world, how can that be art? Um, but it is art because of the intentionality and because of selection. And because of the tremendous technical complications that are involved in um, your choice of camera, medium, film or digital, all, the, uh, all that's involved in printing. Um, but I think so, talking about taking photographs, not only did it give a sense of like you know, stealing something, but it also made it sound maybe a bit too easy. And I do like to think about people making photographs because pressing the shutter is only one tiny part of it, it's one you percent, know, there's the preparation for that moment having the right tools, having the boldness. There's all the choices you make afterwards. You know, after all, I could easily press the shutter 100 times today when I go out for my afternoon walk and take, you know, take those photos. But making a photograph becomes selecting one photo that I think works and working on that digital file and then having a conversation with my, you know, maybe printing a test print in my studio about it and then having a conversation with my master printer about you know, what, how do we addition this? You know, uh, the color matching and all of that. So making, I think, uh, somehow fosters the sense of process um, that's, that's involved in that. Okay, uh, another question? It's kind of a big uh, auditorium. So maybe if somebody does not want to walk all the way, if you raise your hand and you project, yes. Well, you're not so far from the uh, mic. <laughs> Come on. Use the microphone. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. was, it, was it difficult to limit yourself to 12 photographers? I, I suppose I'm a little bit perverse. I, I love, I love uh, uh, formal restrictions. So it was actually just fun, yeah. Because within 12, I really could show you quite a range. So it wasn't really that hard. I could do another 12 tomorrow. But, you know, I feel like I wanted to give you 12 and show you something about where I am today, you know. Um, And when somebody asks, oh, to to name this or to limit this number of things or to name a favorite book or something like this, you know, I readily give an answer because I know by the time I'm asked tomorrow, I'll give a different answer. So I don't agonize about it, you know. It's just an opportunity to share something. Yeah, maybe, uh, yeah, two more questions.
0: Um, wow, thanks. That was great. Um, kind of a dual question. One, I wanted to, if you could briefly tell us a little bit more about Blindspot yeah, that sure. was mentioned. Secondly, do you feel your experience as a photographer yourself, that that feeds into your analysis of photography? And the other side of that question is, for those people who just take snap photos versus making photos, do you think they can ever have, her, a bit out of breath, jumped up? That's all right. <laughs> Do you think they can ever have that depth of understanding without actually trying to experience the art of making something for themselves?
1: Sorry. Yeah, um, I think that um, making prints, I'll start from the end, it's just really, really good because you have something material to look at. It's not a requirement, there are no requirements, but anything that can slow you down and bring you closer to the form is great. For the past four years, I've been shooting 35 millimeter film and medium format. And then this year I went back to digital in the hopes that what I learned from shooting film could influence my digital in some way. You know, whatever can slow you down in life in general, it's just a good idea, you know, um, because everything is hurrying us along all the time. Um, uh, So, Blind Spot is my forthcoming book. By the way, don't follow me on Instagram. Because I post a lot, and you're just gonna be like, you know, this guy's completely overwhelming my feed. Um, however, I am gonna be here for the next almost two weeks. I'm gonna post a lot of New Zealand photographs. So if you'd like to follow me, it's underscore Tejuko, but don't. <laughs> um, but Blindspot, this book will come out in uh, June. It should be available here, because Faber is doing it. And it's just, yeah, it's f- traveling the past many years. Um, and I, as you can see, some of my, fo- uh, my favorite photographers are people who are tussling with, what can words do when you put them next to an image? You know, words and image, words and image, like Daniela Zalkman or Terence Simon or, uh, or even Dianita Singh sometimes. Words and image, what can you do? And this is what this book is about. Um, it, it's a book I'm, I started to compile uh, with the photographs I've made, 25 different countries, uh in 2011 i went blind temporarily in my left eye and after i got better i got better um after i got better i um i i i started to shoot differently and i started to really work in a way that was very sort of not these kinds of images but sort of very yeah meditative and very maybe more influenced by 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 the style of someone like Dianita Singh or or, or Rinko Kawauchi, I mean it's quite different, but also by Steven Shore, but definitely straight ahead photography. So that's what that book is a- about. Um, and then your the first your second question w- was about. Um oh yeah, so uh, writing about photography helps me, I think, be a better f- photographer. Um, the 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 only thing about you know being a critic and making art is that when you're making art, um, you have to keep reminding yourself to be vulnerable. Uh, otherwise, you, you, because you're facing the tremendous risk of being an expert, and I have lots of friends who are experts in various things. They tie themselves up into knots. They can never take a risk. They know what's wrong with other people's work, but they'll never put their neck on the line, never write a poem, never write a novel, never present a photograph as a work of art, never make a painting. Um, And I wanted all the intelligence that a critic could have, but when I go into my art, I'm naked and vulnerable, willing to get it wrong. So, uh, but otherwise, trying to know a lot about photography does not make me a worse photographer. I hope not, you know. Yes, maybe last question, yeah. Yes. That's right. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly different, but almost all art forms have evolved, you know? Filmmaking is different and painting is different. Um, Picasso started out painting social-realist paintings, and by the end of his life, obviously, very, very different things were happening in his work and in everybody else's work. Uh, You know, uh, same thing with Matisse. Poetry has changed. Uh, you know, when your grandparents were young, it was very clear what counted as poetry, and now not only is it different, it's also not as clear. And yet, we can never say that those things a are not being done or are not being done well. Um, somehow, the the quotient of excellence has neither gone up nor gone down good work is always gonna be hard to make. You know, there's that thing about, oh, you know, poetry without, you know, without rhyme is like playing tennis without a net or whatever. Um, But no, I think it's just moving on to a different sport in which your fitness and your excellence still matter. Um, uh, There will always be at heart, and at the heart of all this work, the lyric instinct. These are 12 excellent photographers, all different styles. Some of them might never even have heard of each other. Some of them might not even like each other's work. And yet at the core of each of them is something that has succeeded, that has worked. Um, So, uh, like I said, everybody in the room has a camera but it does not mean that photography is easier now. Good photography that works. There will always be that search for the ability to recognize when the bird fi- finds its branch, you know? When somebody does it and, 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 and nails it. Um, maybe there was a time when we could r- lean on the assurance of everything being clearly and cleanly and formally defined. But you have to also remember that even in the 19th century, when everybody was working with formal rhythm in poetry and with rhyme and very structured forms, it was clear that some people were great poets. And some people, even after having mastered that craft, they had verse, but they did not have poetry. So I think it's always been an elusive thing Um, And I think part of the work that we all do as people who love the arts is, regardless of form or even the absence of form, to recognise when we see the real thing. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Our
0: 2017 Auckland Writers' Festival podcast series is proudly powered by Spark. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.